Hi, everybody. This is Shannon and Kathy. Hello. This is a very special episode that you're just about to listen to. We wanted to pop in here and just give a little bit of context. You're going to now hear a very special interview episode, actually, that Kathy and I did. I'm so excited to listen back to this, and I had so much fun with them. I did, too. They, they're they great. They're yeah. fun. It's a really great project. The film is amazing and artistic, and then just be able to see them away from that and get to know them a little bit better. I, I just feel like that was a really great experience. So. Yeah. So this is Juliet and Dev, who are the makers of a film called A Place Among the Dead, and we so very much love that they were on. So here is our very special episode of Terror Talk. We hope you enjoy it. everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hi. Today on the show, besides Kathy and myself, we have Juliet Landau and Deverell Weeks. Yay. <laughs> so excited for today. <laughs> so excited. It's been a long time coming. We've been waiting for this. Juliet is an actress, director, producer, and writer. As an actress, highlights include her role as Drusilla on Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer and spinoff Angel. She also co-starred in Tim Burton's Ed Wood. I love that movie. I know, it's such a good one. Uh, as Loretta King and played the recurring role of Rita Tedesco on Amazon's number one series, Bosch, in season five. She's currently in a recurring role, ironically, for Buffy fans as Cordelia on TNT's <laughs> Claws. <laughs> and A Place Among the Dead is... Her feature film directorial debut, except for she's also had directorial efforts, including Take Flight, which was produced by Gary Oldman and explored his creative process, and Dream Out Loud that featured interviews with Guillermo del Toro, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Ryan Johnson. And Dev is a producer, writer, director, and cinematographer. For years, as a stills photographer, he photographed news, fashion, and celebrity profiles. And as a cinematographer, he collaborated multiple times with Gary Oldman, including Oldman's music videos, Heaven in Our, Your Eyes, and Red Rover. He shot Rosanna Arquette's documentary, All We Are Saying. I have to see that. I have not. Have you seen that, Kathy? I, I haven't, haven't seen that. No, but I, I love her. I have some things to watch now. <laughs> and other documentary films include Inspired by featuring John Carpenter and Malcolm McDowell. Also, my God, short films as director, including Eulogy, Living on a Prayer, Funeral Party, Waiting. I love short films. I've just been in Sundance watching tons of short films. So oh, it's, fantastic. I love it. I love it so much. They're so creative. I really feel like it's this forefront of the industry's creativity and where a lot of new filmmakers are there, of course. And he's currently producing and co-directing the Undead series with Juliet. So I just want to give you the opportunity to say hello since I just <laughs> talked all about you. <laughs> Hi. Hi. So excited to be here. We, we love your show. It's yeah. a great show. We oh. really love it. We're so excited to, to be here today and to talk to you guys. Uh, thank you so much. You know what? Before we get smart... We're going to do what we like to call Trivia with Shan. Yeah. This is the time that I get to ask Shannon some questions that she never gets right. But right. this time, if Juliet and Dev want to buzz in, if <laughs> Shannon doesn't get it right, which 99% of the time she doesn't, then it's going to be your question. So this is ah. this is actually Buffy trivia with Shan. This is what we like to call oh, in psychology. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. We'll all go like I'm I don't know. Terrible at this too. So yeah, that's partially why I did this because I was like, let's see how much either she remembers or just knows because these are just like random facts, right? There, there'll be a couple in here for sure. You know, I hate you. All right, Shannon, ready? Number one, Buffy's high school. Sunnydale is the same high school used in what other 90s show? Oh, I know, I know this. I do know this. They can go. They can go. Go ahead. Beverly Hills 90s. <laughs> See? That side's already winning. <laughs> 
Yeah, they're going to win. Hello. All, everyone always wins. I always lose this. <laughs> all right. Number two, which character of the original six was cast last and actually recast after the pilot? I know this. I think. <laughs> go, go, go. Is it, is it Willow? Allison? Yay! Yes, it is. <laughs> See, I knew they would know. All right. <laughs> Juliet cannot answer this one. Oh. <laughs> okay. I mean, unless literally... You're flailing, Shannon. Well, I, I will be. Okay. So she will All have to. All right, then to. she can. Number th- or Dev can take a shot at <laughs> Number three, Juliet Landau, who played Drusilla on the series, first starred in this 1990 movie and this 1992 TV's series. So movie in 90, oh, I, I think series I know 92. It. Dev might get I this I don't one. even know it. <laughs> is it. Is it pump up the volume? No. No. Unless Ed, I have Ed, the wrong Ed, fact, is which Ed is possible. Wood, one of them? I have grifters. Oh, the grifters. grifters. Yeah, it was my first. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. And, and what about the show? And the show. It's more of oh. like a, an appearance. I think oh, it was an episode. Oh, Parker Lewis. Yes, can't Parker lose. Lewis can't yeah. lose. Yeah. When, I looked, when I looked up this fact, I was like, I remember that show when I was a kid. Yeah. Oh, was an old nostalgia. One. Now Total I nostalgia. I completely <laughs> had forgotten about that show. Okay, this one's for you, Shannon. Oh, God. Who turned Drusilla into a vampire? Spike? Nope. Dev? Oh. Angelus. Angelus. Yes. There you go. See, <laughs> terrible mythology. I'm terrible at that. Okay, two more. I made Spike a vampire. Well, Drusilla. <laughs> yeah. Or you. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, you know, you heard it here. Yeah. <laughs> Number five, true or false, Buffy's show almost became, so Buffy the Vampire Slayer almost became an animated series, but no one picked it up. Yes, True. True. <laughs> five for five. And the last one, which actor on the cast appeared in both the TV show and original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie? I don't know. I don't even know. <laughs> Dev? Do you know? No. It was Seth. Oh, Seth Green had an uncredited role as a vampire. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did you know that there was a whole bunch of other stuff shot? My friend has always Polaroids of Joss that actually in that film dressed up there's a whole chinese flashback and he's dressed up as an american sailor oh my god <laughs> i would love to see that now i have to watch yeah. that i keep asking him to send me the uh, polaroid so juliet could send them to Joel. oh that's incredible <laughs> oh my gosh all right well now that my shame and humiliation is out of the yep, way you're welcome thank you so much we've well, both I joined you i didn't know a lot of those either that's pretty bad right no no <laughs> they're, it, they're it, such it's... random facts I, yeah i would imagine a lot of them just kind of go with time it helps me feel better about myself so i appreciate that (laughs) so you've served a good purpose here today so we both had the pleasure of watching your recent film let's dig into that a little bit i just want to mention a couple things about the film that i know which is a place among the dead is a revealing and terrifying meld of fact, fiction, and fantastical, where you play your alter ego version named Jules, and you're driven by the demons of your past, and you embark on a journey to the potential cost of everything you know and love. Also, cameos, what you call, what Juliet calls cameos on steroids, uh, <laughs> with Gary Oldman, Ron Perlman, Robert Patrick. Lance Heinrichsen, my boo, by the way, uh, <laughs> Joss Whedon and Anne Rice, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I don't know about for you, Kathy, but this film for me was part memoir, mockumentary, poetry, crime drama. It was a meditation. It was really a ballet. I know that Juliet has that, you know, a dance history, mm-hmm. but it did. It played like a ballet. It me. really did. That's a really good way to put it part narrative part found you know there's a little bit of found footage thrown in there and actually reminds me of drama therapy i don't know if you studied mm-hmm. that in school but yep. drama therapy and like the kind of thing that you would discuss in museums right like where you would screen that and then the audience would really discuss the topic and that was kind of what the q a was a lot like for me absolutely I mean, we really appreciate being able to be included in that and watch is there anything else about the film well, I guess, um, you know, the, the movie explores the repercussions of growing up under the sway of narcissism and evil. And Dev and I both come from that background. And so we we wanted to make a movie that that talked about this in a way that hasn't hasn't been done before. 
and really felt like, you know, this is the issue of our time. Uh, you guys have been talking about it a lot. We've been also, Dr. Romani has been on some of our panels, and she does work in this field like you guys do. And, you know, if you just type in the word narcissism into Google, the numbers are staggering. There are uh, 9,120,000 YouTube videos on the subject. Google has 70,400,000 results. And psychological abuse has 188 million Google results. So, you know, we, we wanted to talk about this through art and entertainment. And the movie is completely scripted. So even the faux interview sections, all of it is scripted, but we wanted to, to blur the lines of reality. So we do this meld, of, as you said, of fact, fiction, and the fantastic. And I think part of the thing, I remember... Julia and I saying that one of the most annoying things in horror films is, why does the person go down the stairs into the basement? Why? Well, this is our answer to that. Really, Juliet struggled with that for a long time, and she said, you know, I think it really is, if you have a proclivity towards the kind of death wish that comes from being around a narcissistic, abusive person, that you're, you're, you're going to be predisposed to putting yourself into danger. Yeah, and, and I think the movie is searingly personal, and we did that because, you know, the old, old adage, the more personal, the more universal. We really wanted to invite the viewer to become the participant and not sit back just as a spectator, but have a, a, an emotional and a visceral response and turn the lens sort of on, on themselves and self-reflect. You know, the whole point was to make an entertaining movie and to give voice to what has affected many and to open up a dialogue like we're having having right now and we've been having from the movie. I certainly felt that that experience that you're talking about and Shannon and I talked about that when we after we watched it that it really pulls you in in a way that doesn't really give you a choice and not in a bad way in a beautiful way of of really being being able to experience that and the proclivity that you're talking about is something that comes up a lot when we are treating survivors of this and actually I was talking to Dr. Romani about this this week about how easy it is to lead those conversations with victim blaming versus like allowing that person to really understand what happened to them first and allow them to, you know, really make sense of that before you can go into the healing piece. I think what Juliet said is really fantastic in that understanding your proclivities, you know, and what Dev was saying about wanting to to understand how you're predisposed to that because of the upbringing usually and the childhood traumas that are there and how we're replaying that in our patterns. What inspired the visual style and the story structure? We really wanted the movie to sort of have a dreamlike, beautiful quality to the visuals in contrast to the stark psychological terror of the experience and so that was something that we spent a lot of time on creating and and wanting the the difference between the emotional rawness and the and both of us are huge film fans but the funny thing is we didn't reference any films for this we referenced paintings we referenced uh, literature and and you you said it really well we wanted to create and this really is it's funny because i'm supposed to be like more than more visual but that really came from juliet demanding that the psychology of disorientation be represented mm. continually in the film. The, and, and it is unrelenting, and, 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 and people are very disoriented by the way she talks directly to the camera. That really, really upsets people at times. I think what, what we were looking at, too, so one of the books uh, that we were inspired largely by was M. Scott Peck's People of the Lie, more the the audio version, which is abridged and is not as as religious as because we're personally not religious, and if that speaks to other people, that that's great. But for us, the abridged version is is less uh, religious in in nature. He was a psychologist and includes case studies about malignant narcissism that we found were really helpful to us personally and in crafting the movie. And one of the things M. Scott Peck says is that when you're in the orbit of or get close to someone like this, that you often feel a sense of confusion and revulsion. And so in the movie, when my alter ego, Jules, gets closer and closer to that particular character, you know, we played with all kinds of things like blurs and statics and things like that. And it really was about that the whole idea of how 
disorienting how you feel like when you're around somebody like that, that you lose your own sense of self bit by bit by bit, how there almost feels like there's no ground, your own sort of truth and reality, your own self gets sort of usurped. And the degraded re- when you see the interviews the first time, you see them very clean. And when you see them at the very end, they're very disoriented. Because at that point, she's reinterpreting history to fit her agenda of self-destruction and her desire to, to you know, she's just hearing, you know, we hear what we want to hear. That's right. Well, yeah, one of the things that we really talked about in the voiceover of the movie, even before that, those sort of the interview sections that Dev is talking about later, is that... We wanted to look at, when when we saw movies, we thought, you know, we've never seen a movie that sounded remotely like the inside of our heads or like that inner monologue that goes on. Often it's sort of narration-based to propel the story or it's very quippy and humorous or it's, you know, the detective telling you the next steps, whatever those things are. But we're thinking about all of these thoughts that are in our minds and where those come from and how they come from the agreements we all make with our parents and those become the thoughts and the voices that propel you forward and you carry into your life and operate out of unless you take stock and uh, change that, those tapes. And that's the whole point of the movie. The movie is sort of a cautionary tale of sorts. My alter ego isn't doing that. She's letting those voices run the show. She isn't breaking those agreements. She's making destructive choice after destructive choice. Ho- hopefully I'm not doing that and neither is Dev in life anymore, but we did for a long time. And we really wanted to look at where those thoughts come from and how much they inform the choices that we all make. And sadly, that was the easiest part of the film to write. Mm. It literally just, it was so easy to write that dialogue. And I think we even pulled some stuff out, didn't we? We, There was stuff we were like, there was stuff we were like, okay, you know, and we'd wanted to be as honest as we could, but there was a point where we were like, we didn't want to go. Well, we also learned that even 80% of the thoughts in everyone's minds, we did some research on this, even those who come from the most stable and loving backgrounds, 80% of, of all of our thoughts are negative. And we thought that was really interesting how we're so derisive and mean to ourselves. And, you know, if you could change that to even 60% of the time, you know, how much more productive could we be? How much more could we give to the world? How much more present could we be if we weren't, you know, sort of telling ourselves how, how crappy we are all the time? Well, and how much Uh, energy it takes to confront those thoughts all the time and how exhausting that is, right? That's, that could be your all day endeavor is to combat those negative thoughts and try to reframe them all day long. That's exhausting personal work right there, all going on inside of you. You know, it reminds me of the book actually that I used to recommend to clients who had narcissistic parents by Alice Miller. I don't know. I know you guys. Oh, this is a good book. Yeah, it's a great one. The drama of the gifted child. Yes, it it is. Just for our listeners, if this resonates with you, People of the Lie and this book that I'm mentioning is is the drama of the gifted child is really great. Were you going to say something, Kathy? I was just going to add to that of what you were all saying about the thoughts is I think what can be really terrifying about that percentage too is so many of those thoughts are so automatic and unconscious that until you're really bringing awareness around them, it just becomes your automatic truth. So it takes that mindfulness of really slowing down and recognizing, how am I talking to myself? What am I? I really like that term agreement, you know, breaking agreements. That's a really powerful phrase. You know, what's been so incredible is that even if it's not familial, you know, whether it's a spouse or an ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend or a co-worker or a boss or a friend or our world leaders, what ends up emerging when we uh, are, are talking with people uh, after seeing the film, people end up saying, it sounds like we are describing the same person because the traits are so much the same. It's, it's, you know, there's a certain part, point which actually is, is rather comforting because then you can recognize it when it comes in, you know, your way again in life. Uh, but, but it's interesting that so many people from every walk of life, every, you know, uh, socioeconomic, from all different geographic, from everywhere, people say, oh my God, this is like you know, you're talking about my ex or you're talking about my boss or you're talking about, you know, so that's been really powerful. It does not discriminate. No. I, I'm Julia and I are both from economically very different 
classes. I'm a working class English person and Juliet is from Beverly Hills. And it's so interesting that we share so much in common mm-hmm. in, in regards to that. I would ask you, what was it like as a couple to work on such a vulnerable piece together that you share so many commonalities? I think the things that we shared was it was just such a common. It was so clear that it had to be done, that someone has to do it. It's, it's so interesting. It's amazing what you guys are doing, that the time for this is now. It really is. You guys are on the vanguard. I think we've contributed to being on the vanguard of that as well. Yeah, the, in a way, the mission of the movie was 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 so uh, such a driving force. I think for both of us, a little bit of what I was saying. You know, I'm the the face of it, playing Jules and my alter ego and my story. But really, uh, a lot of that stuff was scripted together. We scripted everything, and as I was saying, it was the same. So a lot of those voices, a lot of those messages, they're from both of our houses. Like it isn't just from mine. And so that it was sort of interesting as we were scripting them and then recording them and then layering them in the edit bay and, and working on, through all of those processes, it was interesting that it was basically communal here. And then how much those thoughts and those voices or whatever you want to call them, agreements, have been resonating with everybody, including the people when we were working in post, you know, working on them. You know, we thought at first, oh, wow, this is so revealing. Are people going to think it's sort of freaky that we're <laughs> saying this stuff? And it's people are like, oh, my God, I think that all the time. I don't even feel like I deserve to be here or whatever those thoughts are. Totally universal. And I obviously you're finding that out through screening the film and seeing the film with so many audiences and doing interviews and all of this. Is there any new insights from screening your film and having these Q&As that you either didn't expect or didn't know you would get when you sent this out into the world? How vast the problem is. Yeah, How absolutely vast. It's like its own pandemic. Basically, it's incredible. Everyone's had a, a, an experience with a narcissist mm-hmm. that has been, I mean, it's almost, it, that I think it has been surprising in terms of, even in like our artist, we ended up finding out has in, is in a court, a whole court situation with his ex that's been prolonged and protracted mm-hmm. because I know that Kathy, you deal with that a lot. The court system so is it's, it, it's unforgivable. They don't even want to look at it. It's it's a yeah. it's an obstacle. Uh, I, I saw the amount of feedback received by a lot of the survivors, and mm-hmm. I wanted to just follow up with Shannon's question about what that was like for you. And you're, I know you're sort of talking about that now of reading all of these stories coming in. Hi, experiences. Thank you so much for doing this film. Not only does it alert us to the issue and and how you know, like you were saying, Dev, this is the time to address it. But what did that feel like for the two of you to just get all of that back? It's been so profound and so powerful. I mean, when people say, like, uh, I've never told anyone this before, but, or people, have, we have one uh, gal who's come to a number of screenings whose fiance committed suicide, and she said that, you know, his mother was a malignant narcissist, and she said the abuse continues after his death, and she said, you know, that the movie really gave her peace to get understand more of what was going on in his own in his mind i was talking with a journalist a couple days ago that i've known through the years we've discussed any number of projects from before buffy all the way and she said oh my god i was so excited to talk to you after you know seeing the movie because there was something in the construction of the movie where i felt like you were talking directly to me not even to that audience, but just like sort of saying, hey, Abby. And as a result, I, you know, would have really been reflecting on my past. Uh, she shared stuff about, um, and, and I'm, she's, I'm keeping her it, an, uh, anonymous in terms of who she is, but, you know, in terms of some sexual abuse from when she mm-hmm. was, you know, teen years, which I would never have known. We ended up, our interview was supposed to be 20 minutes. It ended up being an hour and a half conversation, which was sort of like, how have you become this warrior that has crafted this incredible journalistic career coming from that? How did you change those tapes? What have you, you know, all of that stuff in terms of, and it was just incredible, you know? So for me, it's been, it's been really the reason we made the movie. And some people said, oh my God, you know, we did one event near, near the holidays because we thought well for people dealing with families it could be very topical and and a lot of people said you know it helped me I decided not to see my family for the first time ever I didn't even know that was an option Mm -hmm. and it doesn't work for everybody and people aren't all, all up for it but 
it is an option. And actually for both of us, our lives just bloomed when we stopped interacting with those people. I had mixed feelings in the sense I felt very sad mm. that so many people were suffering. And they really, we are all of us suffering. And we all, if you come from it, and it is so prevalent and it's so destructive, that was really sad. But then there's also, I, I look at, like you, I look at Dr. Ramani, it becomes the mission. You almost become these people on a mission where you're like, let's get to the next screening, let's get to the next Zoom, and let's go to work. Let's, let's really try and do something. Because if we don't, because this is consciously changing the tide this is the first time this has ever really really been discussed and it, it's I, I i really liked the uh, vampires narcissism show that you did mm -hmm. and it's and very the invisible man and invisible man both well. of, and what's interesting our friend uh, cecile is a therapist in france and she found that in there's a a french therapist who's done the book of dracula as a study in, as narcissism comparing him to like the perfect narcissist so it's i'd like to it, read that it, <laughs> that was that that was the thing and i and i think sometimes i feel so honored to be around these people that mm. are sharing and juliet leads that on the foot vanguard because juliet has more risk is more at risk than anyone and let's be honest people can give her a hard time because of it and oh. people have there have been media type people who've been aggressive and negative well it's a form of, it's it. a form of gaslighting right Yes, it is. It is. It's it's a how, how dare you. And it was interesting. One of the last emails we got that I don't even think is included in that is a gal who said, oh, my gosh, I was in a relationship for three years. I mean, I'm out. I've been out of it for three years. I'm only now just getting a sense of myself back. And I didn't even know what hit me till I saw your movie. And in watching your movie, I was like, oh, my God, that's how I felt. This is that was what was going on. And she said just being able to put a name on it and sort of understand stand it is like that puzzle piece that goes aha okay right. i now know what i like i'm not gonna you know what what led me to make be get involved in that so that i don't do that again yeah the mission is entirely clear to me i see that you two have taken this as an artistic and creative endeavor in order to both work through your own demons and story and also help others. And I can say for myself that both familial, relational, and in my work, I'm confronted with being drawn to and in relationship with narcissism on a regular basis. And I realized that by becoming a therapist, that I was in a unique psychological space, a mental space to be able to sit with narcissists as a as a more depressively oriented personality, because depressively oriented and narcissism go together like mm. puzzle pieces. Right. They really, really complement each other. And, and, you know, because the depressive, you know, blames themselves. And so does the narcissist blames the depressive, you know, everybody <laughs> depressive, blames right. the depressive Everyone's for everything. <laughs> so that's, you know, happy times for both. <laughs> but it, it, it allowed me to sit in that. And then, you know, 10 years gone, I, I really feel like that's why I'm in the profession is to work with these kinds of personality disorders and then all of the things that pile on top of them. Because as you guys know, what you, what you can handle and what you can sit with most naturally will come to you. And so, but I get to do it with, with boundaries and energetic exchange of, of money and, you know, so that I can work with it, but I can play in that psyche too. I don't know, Kathy, if you're my doctorate's actually in forensic psychology, so a lot of my early work is working with sexually violent predators and violent offenders, and so I have been immersed in the world of malignant narcissism, sociopathy, antisocial personality disorder, which is really where, as Romney will say, the getting into the underbelly and being, being able to sit with that and understanding, uh, you know, not that that's an excuse, but it's an understanding of what's going on there in that space, like Shannon's talking about. And then just through my own trajectory and even my own experience as a survivor and waking up just like some of the people that wrote to you said, oh my gosh, I realized what just happened. I got to the end of myself and I didn't know what it had been. And and now I work more so with survivors and working um, in the court system and trying to keep children and and family members from being forced to be on, in the custody of these narcissistic parents because we're all sitting here being able to say we know how this play this tape plays out 
Right. But the court system still refuses um, in many ways, which is, you know, we were just talking about on one of our episodes how California has now officially adopted a coercive control bill, which now includes, you know, forms of emotional abuse signed by Garcetti. You can look it up. We are one of the first states, if not the first state to implement this, which I think is going to play a very big role in some of the court work that I do, because the amount of preparation and the armor and the battle that we go into when I'm representing these clients because a lot of the legal system is narcissistic in nature. Right. It's systemically right. narcissistic. So yeah. it is really like prepping for battle. So And it's and the narcissist knows totally also how to play within oh my the, gosh. The, the system that oh, is yeah. narcissistic. Well, they just right? create so they chaos. Really, they create yeah, yeah. chaos or they they can hold the mask up long enough and, and gaslight the, the other oh. person so much that we start to see like, you know, the, the unraveling of the, the person who's, you know, healthier, um, or, or not personality disordered. And then the court looks at that person and goes, well, clearly you're, you know, you're unfit to parent and the narcissist wins. I mean, it's just, it's a setup. It's a disaster. I think it's also, you know, the funny thing is as well is when you really look at the narcissist, they are, I mean, part of the metaphor of the vampire is so perfect because they are essentially empty. Yeah, well, they yeah. continually need to to take and to be fed, and and I think that that's the truly. I I, I mean I know from myself. I know Juliet knows that that um, that empty terror, that almost blind terror that is driving the narcissist, is so awful to be around. Yeah, I mean one of the we we the reason we sort of used the vampire metaphor, uh, you know, first of all we wanted to make an entertaining movie, but also we wanted to lull the audience into a sense of safety in a genre that they're familiar with to explore unsafe, uncomfortable, and what to many are radical ideas. It was a way to bring in my history and all of the um, the other actors' uh, histories. And as Dev, Dev said, and as you guys uh, in your in your podcast, the vampire is the perfect metaphor for the ultimate narcissist. It's a being that drains all for its own survival and its own needs, with no regard for its prey. It's uh, you know, if you're not talking about familial narcissism, you often invite those people into your life. They're charismatic and they have you under their thrall. They're they don't change, and vampires don't change. Narcissists don't get better. They don't you know. Th- there's no ability ability to have self-reflection mm-hmm. and vampires have no reflection in the mirror. I mean, there's just so many ways yeah. that it's like the, 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 the perfect, perfect, you know, way to, to look at this. Yep. I have a question for you guys. We, Darcel, Julia named Darcel means darkness in French. Mm-hmm. And we sort of base Darcel on a type of man that is really like a pimp. Like he is a pimp with his girls in the world. Is that also a, 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 he's, he's the peacock? He's the, peacock. Anyway. he's the beautiful one, and they are there to please him. Is, is the is you know the way a pimp psychology is that the psychology of a narcissist? What do you mean? You mean grooming, Dev? Like the grooming, grooming, the way they psychologically disorientate and control these young people. Well, probably with some of the way I would think, I don't know, I'd let you guys answer this better, but the way it, in relationships where they love bomb somebody and sort of would be very similar to a pimp, like where they start out and sort of, oh, this is going to be great. And then they sort of then degrade the person when they're already, I mean, it would seem, I don't know. I mean, I think it goes back to a lot of what Shannon was saying. What we've been talking about all along is there's there's a lack of of self there right so they come on strong they mirror what that they believe that person wants they create that future faking they create all this in that moment i think that there's a part of them that believes that they have finally found Mm. the one thing that's going to fulfill that constant emptiness that's there but as they progress and they realize that that other person has their own thoughts feelings behaviors that they are not an extension or an object to the narcissist that's when you start to see that devaluation and that mask drop and where they start to become incredibly rageful i mean a narcissist really cannot love in a mature way right so supply they need constant supply whether it's a person whether it's monetary they need to be fed that's why the vampire is such a great metaphor because it's constant feeding they are insatiable and nothing will ever feed that because they are bottomless they're a bottomless pit 
when I think of the caricature or the persona of a pimp, I think of someone who is coming purely from their shadow side. They're operating from their shadow self. And so when they're talking with you, they're tapping into your shadow self. So it's it's a bunch of magic and master of illusions type of thing happening there where everyone is in an illusion. And I think that's why when we come out of that kind of controlling situation, we feel that fog lift because it's shadowy. It's literally as, you know, you, yeah. young, young would talk about it. It's shadowy. It, you're in the shadows. Nothing is clear. Things are dark. Things are not clear. And so when you come out, there's this fog lifting and you feel your mental processes and the chaos kind of goes away uh-huh. because, because image has replaced substance and what Jung called the persona. And so it, the persona becomes more internally vivid and dependable than one's actual self. And so uh-huh. when you get away from that controlling situation, you get back, you start to get back to that true self, like what we're talking about. It's interesting because that book, you met, you guys mentioned a book, Out of the Fog. Yeah. Uh, I'm really interested in because because it is that whole feeling that, that M. Scott Peck was talking about, the confusion, and then we sort of in the movie with the voices, you didn't talk about uh, need you to be confused and be a mess and be, and it is like being in this, this fog. I think also because you're belying the actual truth of the situation constantly, right? Like you're mm. not acknowledging the truth. You're obfuscating it from yourself to, to subsist in the relationship. Another book that we found really useful for our journeys was The Fantasy Bond by Robert mm. W. Firestone, all, you know, which is basically about the fact that you, when you're young, you can't really look at the fact that it's your parents, that they're not capable of loving you or whatever those things are. So you think it's you. You think everything is that you take it on. It's the only way to tolerate it, right? The child has to internalize it. They can't see their parent as bad. They internalize right. that shame. Well, it's too terrifying. terrifying. How would you, right? Because these are mm-hmm. the people that are supposed to be taking care That's of right. you. That's so. right. I just wanted to share two things that came up from that. One is I definitely experienced every time I deal with a narcissist, my crushing sense of not fulfilling that need, that I basically have failed. That's the biggest, you know, like basically I can't fill up the whole it's an impossible job, but I signed up for it. And and the second thing you, you were talking about, I consciously remember being in a car with my father. I was 11 years old and we were driving. And I, I know he thought about throwing me out of that car. Mm. I know it in myself. I felt that energy. I felt it later in my life and threatening... And and I think that really informed a lot of what we and wanted to bring. And you said you, you changed from that moment you thought, you said, oh, I must be wrong or something, right? Yeah, like, I mean, I immediately committed to trying to be better. It must be me. It must, I must try harder. And of course, 40, we call it our life sentence. Juliet and I say we did two life sentences. What is a life sentence? Uh, 20 to 25 years, you know, we signed up for two life sentences. Well, one of the things we, we looked at in the movie is actually the, the parents only have 44 seconds of voices and imagery in a 77-minute movie, but their impact is so strong. And, you know, we thought that was really analogous to, to our lives. You spend 15 to 17 years being reared, and then if you're lucky to live long, you spend like 70 years, 60 to 70 years operating out of that, unless you say, hey, wait, I don't, I don't need to keep operating out of that. I need to actually mm-hmm. change change my life actively make different choices were there points in the film where you either one of you felt triggered or overwhelmed by reliving the experiences like the personal experiences you guys are sharing today I didn't so much when we, I mean, when we were on set, we, we had like a hundred people working for us. We had done, we did a few weeks of rehearsal with the whole cast. We had a lot of work to do and, and we allowed certain days for the very emotional scenes to be just those scenes. And we worked with our line producer in terms of scheduling. I would say that the, the one, when we were, our friends, uh, Harry Groner and Don Didowick, uh, recorded the parents' voice over, and they actually, we, we recorded, they came over to our house, and we were doing it as temp, we thought, but then it was so powerful that we ended up using it in the final film, and we had scripted all of this stuff, and we sat around, and they were whispering these sort of insidious and seductive, and like in every possible way, and after about 
three hours of these voices, you know, uh, they said, I said, well, I think we've, we've got quite enough here. And they said, do you have any alcohol? Like, we just, you know? And then after that, I'd say, like, I spent a week before uh, bringing, like, working with our editor on layering those for the, uh, for the opening sequence and for some of the other points in the film. And Dev was actually, you were gone. And he came back after a day that I'd been working for 16 hours straight with these voices and uh so i think one of those days it was like wow okay i've heard way too much negativity <laughs> from one human in one day and then it was funny though because when we were we, when we were working on it dev was so great and instrumental and i tried all kinds of things i had tried with our composer some score under there some sound effects some different things and <laughs> dev said to me you know when you're having that kind of thinking you don't have any music swelling under there, right? Like there's nothing, there's no escape. It's relentless. It's yeah. like there is nowhere to go. And so we really wanted to make it like that was the only thing. There was nowhere for the audience to go except for to have that. And when you're actually sitting in a theater, not only online, we did the mix so that there's a certain point where the voices actually surround mm -hmm. and come around. And so we, we really wanted it to be that you're, you're in this place, you know, it's, you're in a black box and the screen has sort of this thing that looks almost almost like intestines and it's how these voices get into your sort of innards mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know and, and to have it be almost that little bit too long you know that little bit yeah. too much uh you know and so so some of that was probably yeah and for me I think well Julia and I we were very protected by our line producer Ashley Friedman he gave us there was a lot of problems we didn't deal with logistically and he was a wonder, he's a wonderful person, a wonderful man, and he really protected us. And we said, the, we call it the orange room and, and, the, and, and the blue room. The blue room is the first room that she's in where she's talking to the camera, and the mm -hmm. orange room is the last room. We wanted those as a longer schedule for those moments as possible so Juliet could really act. And, and weirdly, I remember the one in the, the second room, the movie at the very end of the film, and I felt that was sort of freeing for me watching Juliet do that. Mm -hmm. I think I thought I'd waited to see something like that for a long time in my life that really spoke to feelings I've had that, that I know Juliet, maybe I think I could speak for you and say you've had and being in that room and working on those scenes. And it was very intense because what happened was it was myself, the camera operator, not even the DP, everyone else was on another room in a monitor and I was in the room with Juliet and Juliet would do the scene and do it again and again. And then I walked in and this is a very, you know, Teamsters, hardened people all had their heads down and were all not able to look because mm -hmm. it, it got really real. I was able to rewatch the film this week, actually. And what I noticed in myself the sec on the second go around was how visceral it is. And I think that's really what you're talking about, Dev. I mean, you guys were in the room when you were creating it, which, you know, it has that birth energy that's even more palatable. But as a viewer, what I was really struck by is in your performance, Juliet, all of the grunting and panting and screaming and all of that gut was coming up and I just I feel like that is so affecting for an audience as an actress because I felt that visceral chill in my body and and it would go on for a little bit too long like you said Dev <laughs> it would go on for a little bit too long and I would and I would really struggle with wanting to turn my volume off which is what I do when I have trauma triggers <laughs> is I mute my TV <laughs> and so I really I really fought with myself doing that so it was incredibly effective for me that's for sure that 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 scene and I think I referred to that scene when we talked about it on the show the piece that really hit me and was so real to me is the scene where the door is left open and mm. you're still in there. And, and it's, again, it's not this, uh, well, why didn't you leave? You know, we don't ask people that question, but it's often a question I asked myself, what kept me there when the door was open? And it's such a, mm -hmm. it's such a wrestling feeling and power. That's where I felt, I think, incredibly triggered mm -hmm. in a good way. I mean, it was very, it was very effective. That scene was um, really incredible. I mean, really that's powerful. often that's often the conversation you have with clients is mm -hmm. at least for mm -hmm. me, that's one of the qu conversations I have is I say you were 
in the room, you know, metaphorically speaking, you were right, in right. the room and let's talk about what the room was like. What was it like yeah. to be in the room? How did you feel like being in that house with them and in that relationship? And, and you're not going to say why you're not going to ask the why question, but you're going to sort of say like, what was it about that room that had you feel as if that was home? Right. Uh-huh. What was home about that room? Because you're looking for home, whether that's uh-huh. dysfunctional or not, uh-huh. you know, what was home? me about that room and then of course right. often people will say nothing it was horrible it was like yes but something was very familiar something, that was Dangerous. one of, you know the the dialogue that we have the parents there's certain points where sort of Jules is going in the not healthy direction and the voiceover is yes yes you're home now like it is exactly what you're talking about as uncomfortable it's so familiar. It's what you know. It's what you think. You know, I mean, for me, one of the things that in my own journey was so sort of eye opening and is probably obvious to other people is when somebody said to me, you know, love is not the, the predominant feeling in love is not pain. It is not a painful feeling. And that was so shocking to me. I was like, and it wasn't until I, I met Dev and I really and and that's why we put some of that into the movie oh love is when someone really has your back and when you have theirs love is when you each want each other to thrive and be the best people that you can be love is really being a team love I'm gonna get all like choked up talking (laughs) about but it was so shocking to me because I had been told that this other thing was love which really was sort of so painful and nauseating and everything that isn't a feeling if i go into like literal body feelings of what it was it was not it was the total antithesis of what love really is which is light and growth and evolution as opposed to sort of being suppressed the familiarity piece is really powerful i often often have that conversation with my clients if it's familiar go the other way you know we joke <laughs> about that just because we think of familiarity you know family familiar whatever as this really positive thing but it's often it's often where the trauma sits one of the great things about genre films is that genre films do not have to conform to a Hollywood narrative that is predominantly set that, like, we were talking about The Shining. Mm-hmm. It's, it could be the story of an alcoholic man who hates his family. Mm-hmm. That could be it, you know? Like, and that's pretty fucking terrifying, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That's right. terrifying in itself. And I think what's so interesting, and one of the great conversations we've had, Dr. Romani, and the frustration is that Hollywood likes to put forward one narrative and that narrative is you have to forgive your family, and it's infuriating. Or forgive anyone who's yeah. done something unforgivable. It's right. and it's for us and for people we see grow and thrive in life. It's not real, right? It can, it's your choice if you choose to sign up for it. But there has to be another narrative. There have to be other there options. There are other options. You know, it isn't necessarily always that you're going to get the healing from that person and by forgiveness and all of that whole thing. You're going to get the healing actually potentially from not engaging with that at all. That's yeah, right. having that's right. Often, I mean, more times than not, that's what's necessary is setting that ultimate boundary. And then I'm struck by the idea that, so you've set that ultimate boundary and then you're into a relationship that appears and is healthier and you know you're going in the right direction and how chaotic and dysregulating that is because that doesn't feel like home at first, right? Mm-hmm. So you're in a healthier relationship and you need support to be able to say, no, no, this dysregulation you feel is actually you creating a better pattern. You being in a new and healthy relationship, it doesn't feel right to you. No, it feels groundless. There's (laughs) certain things that feel groundless because your ground, as you have had it defined, is very different. And it's actually that feeling of groundlessness, which is a positive, but but it's scary, but it's a positive because you know you're you're growing, you're changing. Also, you're like a person who got out of of a life sentence and you come into life and you've never really been in the world. You've never really not been in that life sentence. You've never really not been in that terrible situation. And so it is a massive learning curve. But the, and the weird thing is, Julia and I both come from families that told us we could not write, we could not make this film, this film could not happen. Mm-hmm. And, I and, that. and for us to do this, 
is, and you know, the, I mean, it's very interesting. May, may I share what Juliet's name in her family was the truth teller, mm. which is like a kind of, it's kind of how we're, we're pigeonholed into these things that Juliet did tell the truth, but she also did all these things they said she couldn't do. They said she couldn't write, she couldn't direct, she couldn't control this. And her true essence is that person. The real gift of the freedom of being away from a narcissist is that you discover things about yourself. Like Shannon was saying, that true self. You go back to your true self. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No, go ahead, Juliet. Oh, I was just going to say that I, as, as, look, looking at the truth is incredibly painful. It's not a laugh a minute, (laughs) but it is so much better. And it is so much, it's really liberating, actually, when you do, because of what Dev's saying. Like, you, when you see it with a clarity, it isn't a joyous thing to acknowledge the relationships, whether it's family, whether it's, you know, a past relationship, the time that you've given, all of that stuff. But there is something in seeing it for what it is that is very liberating. Um, I'd like to, you were asking earlier about the, what we get from the Zooms that we do. The gift is... I think sometimes we, we as a group of people all bear witness and go, that feeling you had, that feeling's probably correct. That feeling that this wasn't right is actually probably correct. Yeah, the validation. More than that. The audience doesn't need more than that. And I think, wouldn't you say that's a great gift from it is that, that you hear? Yeah. And I think some of the other thing that you guys, that you touched on a little bit about that idea, and it's one of the things that we were sort of, playing with it, you know, in a, in our own lives, hopefully we're not making these destructive choices that Jules is doing. You know, I'm not, I'm not leaving Dev to go after, because basically, you know, the whole structure of the movie is that idea too, that when you're kind of going after the unwinnable parent, you're replaying this and each time it gets worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. But there are these moments in, in our lives still where you're like, oh, I'm having, we like to call it a false tap false self attack you know where the chaos rears its head again like there are you know it there is that moment where you go oh i'm not feeling up to this task today it's something it's so contrary such contrary action for me to do this so that's coming up for me that and then you go okay well that's what that is all right well let me look at it i can handle it life we've come through this far you know that's one of the things we did want to look at in the movie was that idea too where you know you think you've got it squared away you know and then it rears its head again and it's you know that's that's the thing you know that we all sort of keep having to learn certain things over and over or or progress through things and that's just the human aspect of it i think right i mean i think the topic of narcissistic abuse is this topic that isn't spoken openly about in general, but we are all obviously working towards having more open conversations about it. And I'm just wondering, I'm imagining that when you went into this project, and then you were, you know, it was finished, and you started to take it out into the world, I'm imagining that you anticipated some, uh, like a high probability for skepticism or misunderstanding of the project. And I'm just wondering how you sort of handled that or sorted that out within yourself. Yeah, we definitely talked about it and sort of knew that we were going to get a lot, make some people really angry. We were going to get, how dare you? We were going to get, you know, in, we're in this, we're bucking up against the fourth commandment. There's there's a lot of people that want to gaslight and say like, you know, this, all that stuff. So we're definitely knew it was going to be an issue and talked at length about it. Yeah, how, I want to know how people yeah, handle yeah. it then. Yeah, yeah, like, because you guys talking about it when too. you... There's the person that comes to you that needs help. They're in a narcissistic relationship. The minute you identify the narcissist, you're at war. With that person hates you. The narcissist will want to demean you, dismiss you, get rid of you. The big influence on our life was a wonderful man called Robert Lorenz, who was our therapist. And Juliet's mother would call him Dr. Bob. Mm-hmm. Like she would demean him in many ways to demean his power of who he was. How do you deal with that? Treating someone and then you sort of say, oh, this is the kind of relationship, then in a way, do you become the enemy of that? I I mean, I've I've had parents who, let's just say I'm working with a family and I've seen a pattern that's starting and I can see that one of the parents are narcissistic or pathologically narcissistic. I may 
pull the healthier parents aside and say, we need to stop family therapy. This is the dynamic that's going on. And I'm seeing the abuse perpetuate in the room. I'm calling out this narcissist to a certain extent in the room. I've had that parent refuse to ever speak to me again, come back, blame me for the family breaking up, maybe not to my face, but through the children, through the other partner as they start to get healthier. If it's an intimate partner, Many of my clients don't know that uh, their partners don't even know they're in therapy because it's safety uh-huh. thing for them to have that. And one of the things that any of us who treat this sort of abuse is please don't go home and try to educate your narcissist. Okay, <laughs> you are going to get destroyed because yeah. there is going you're going to see that narcissistic rage. So a lot of it is about helping them neutralize the narcissistic defenses, meaning, you know, we talk about some of the cultural language around neutrality or what, you know, some people may call gray rocking, gray rock. going home and less is more really trying to not engage them and building safety plans on the side. It, there's a fine line. And this is something that is brought up a lot, I think, in the culture of, of treating this. And I've gotten into debates with people and, and the work that I do with Romani and the NAAA, we, we sort of try to explore this and pick this apart is there's a fine line between helping someone do their inner work and also allowing them to know that the abuse was not their fault. That doesn't mean that there isn't inner work to do. That doesn't mean that we can't go back and look at those patterns and look at those agreements. But I think that there's a culture of when someone who's been narcissistically abused walks into an office, there are therapists who jump to that codependency model. What did you do? Why did you? That's what they lead with. And so it doesn't give the space for the client to at least first process the abuse, understand what happened to them was not their fault. Now, that doesn't mean there's there's in work. So there's so it's very, very loaded. And there's so many different ways that people treat it. And I think it just continues to evolve in a way that, you know, teaches that self-compassion breaks those agreements and helps people neutralize if that narcissist has to be in their life still could be a parent or or whomever that we help them sort of with the safety plan and how to manage that. Yeah. I would just add to all of that and say that there's this spectrum of narcissism. Sure. And that I'm assessing for where they are at on that spectrum. So <laughs> that's a part of what is happening too because if if what you're talking about is that rigid narcissism that can't be tolerated that has to have a profound boundary and I often am working with people that are on some other part of that spectrum because they're in therapy so they're they've actually gotten to a point where they can talk about it or lead with it or and so a bit. Yeah. yeah or reflect a bit they've actually gotten that a little bit of that piece of themselves and they're just trying to work out why their relationships are failing etc so it's a little bit different so I'm looking at the at the spectrum as well. Right. No, that's, that, that's, that matters for sure. Yeah. Where, where that person falls on that continuum. Right. Okay. We're going to switch gears here for just a moment. We have so many people who listen to the show who clearly love Buffy. You know, you, you were such an awesome character on the show. The series was so influential in so many different ways. Joss Whedon really brought awareness to inclusivity, to outcasts, those otherwise who didn't fit in. I read an interview where he dis- discussed how vampires and demons were somewhat metaphors for like the teenage demons we all experience. And so the franchise just, it really blew up and became a fan favorite. Drusilla and Spike were these anti-heroes. Can you just let us in a little bit on what it was like for you to be a part of such an amazing series? It was wonderful. I mean, Joss created such an unbelievable universe and everybody, it was just a great group of people right from the get-go. It was interesting because I never even read for it. I had a creative meeting with Joss and David Greenwald, who was one of the writers and producers and co-created Angel, and Gail Berman, who was one of the executives, and Marsha Shulman, the head of casting at Fox. And it was just this creative meeting right from the get-go. And then he told me that he had had Spike and Drew running around in his head for 10 years. And they paired me with the five final choices for Spike. And the minute James Marsters came in, we just had an incredible acting chemistry. You and, did. And so... 
yeah, it was it was it was a it was just a wonderful thing. And the show was sort of what you said, high school is a nightmare. And I think everybody related to it. One of the things that has been interesting this week, Dev had a conversation with David Greenwald, and he said that he hadn't seen a response since Buffy. The response to a, a place among the dead has been that kind of emotional response that he wow. hasn't experienced since that, which was just an incredible compliment. That's incredible. But it was just a great group of people, and you knew like we we came in, James and I came in second season and when I left it was funny because I left the first meeting and I hadn't even gotten to my car in the parking lot and my phone rang and my agent said you've got the job (laughs) that's nice (laughs) yeah it was really nice and I was like are you sure I haven't even left yet and and, uh And I went straight from there to the market. Remember when marketing was not a stressful thing with masks? (laughs) I do. (laughs) Um, It was just a normal errand. And I remember that Buffy was actually on the cover of TV Guide. And it was like, oh, this is cool. This is like this moment where it's all, you know, it's it's really catching. It's it's catching the fancy of the audience. So if you have either of you feel comfortable talking a little bit about, you know, 20 or 25 years ago when you were doing Buffy or Angel, that the, your experiences of narcissism in the film and TV industry were very different maybe than now or maybe not. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. That's interesting. I, I think narcissism is, is prevalent in every industry, in every occupation and every everything it's actually people sort of rise to the top that have those those tendencies mm-hmm. and are sort of willing to do anything to get where where they're going clearly entertainment has has it in in all aspects behind and and in front of the camera I don't know. Would you say, Deb, that it's changed a lot in that? I can tell you an, an interesting story. We were going to have someone work on one aspect of the movie, and they showed the movie to their wife, mm. and their wife got up and stormed out. Oh, yeah. And that relationship ended th- that moment. It was pretty intense, and and we have experienced that a few times. Oh. I would say where people have really viscerally the thing. You know, God just God. But God, in terms very, of the, and they come at you very sideways. You know, one thing that I think is interesting is that the whole Me Too movement. One of the things that hasn't been addressed and is a, sort of an offshoot in terms of narcissism is, you know, it's always been a, a, a given, right from when I was a young actress, and unfortunately still that hasn't really been addressed. That there's people sleep with people to get parts, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. is a thing that is like sort of just accepted. Oh, that's and and you know maybe the parties say, oh, I really like this director or agent or producer or whatever way people justify it, but it's always been a kind of given. And until that's talked about as well as sort of, you know, sexual predatory behavior, but also sort of the complicit aspect of people getting ahead and using that on both ends, until that's sort of really talked about as well, that's a bigger component that hasn't really been looked at. And I think that is part of narcissism on both ends, plays into it on both ends. Both parties are operating out of that. And and I have to share a story with you. Juliet went up for an audition for a major movie that came out. And it's about ageism, yeah. And and this is about sort of ageism. Which goes to narcissism as well, superficiality. Superficiality, where she was 20 years younger than the leading man. The girl that got the part... 30 years. 32 years younger. <laughs> and they were, wow. and the weird thing about it is that they, it's in the script, they were supposed to be contemporaries and they were historical figures that came up at the same time. So it didn't even remotely make sense to have oh, someone that wow. was 32 years younger and looked like the lead actor's granddaughter playing his wife. Wow. So that's something that keeps going on and being put out and putting out and, and sort of like it's okay for men to age but it isn't okay for right. women to age Julia's actually a member of an organization called Greenlight Women and our lawyer Ivy Kagan Beerman created that organization and that's to say that you know women over 40 still really have a voice and still have things creatively to say and they, that they want to do which is awesome First of all, we really want to thank both of you for coming on today. This has just been such an incredible experience to hear you talk about this project. It's, I think, like you were saying, so many of us have experienced this and just all of the feedback that you've been getting. We really commend you for doing this film. It's such a statement. It's such a, a risk 
because like you said, there are going to be so many people who are going to fire back, but this is how change happens. We have to be open to that and know that it's going to come at us because we don't change when things are comfortable. Mm -hmm. So this is really just such a wonderful thing to experience. And we really appreciate you just taking the time and coming on and, and, and talking about it. But just for this last little bit of fun before we wrap up, we're going to do a rapid fire question and answer and you and Dev can shout these out however you want. (laughs) Cats or dogs? Dogs. Dogs. Tea or coffee? Oh, I like coffee, but I'll go with tea because I you can't drink caffeine that way anymore. <laughs> Books or films? Both. The movie uh, that made you love movies? Mine is On the Waterfront. Mine's the same. It's On the Waterfront. Wow, well, look at that. Favorite vampire movie besides your own? Oh, there's so many good ones. Gosh, let's see. Well, the original Dracula, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, yeah. Gary Oldman, so incredible. Yeah, he in that he movie. still scares me to death to this day in that role. <laughs> so wonderful, that performance. I mean, the yeah. fact also through all that prosthetic as the oh old man. Oh, my gosh. How yeah. expressive oh, he is. It's also, we have the Undead series, so there's so many people. We Near, Dark, so. uh, Near Dark. Near Dark, I, I love I, as yeah, well. It's incredible. Uh, I'm still a fan of The Lost Boys, personally. The that's Lost what Boys is wonderful. The uh, Hunger. 30 Days of Oh, Thirty Days of Night. Our composer's okay. husband created Thirty Days of Night. That's one of our favorites too. Yeah. And then what about Spike or Angel? Both. Come on. Both. <laughs> me too. Me too. I just want to say this has been a total pleasure, and it's fantastic to meet both of you. And I really appreciate you being here with us. And I hope to speak with you on your next project. I believe is it the Undead series? Is that yeah. what you're working on next? Yeah. And actually, we have a whole bunch of a, a slate of other stuff as well. And we just this flew by. We just had yeah. the best time, and we'd love to ask you guys. We, we're putting together more screening events. So if you are would be interested in being yes. on one of like the panels and being involved, we'd love to have you be a part we of that we would arrange it yeah thank you so much guys you guys are beyond awesome we love what you guys are doing it's amazing super, so super fun and entertaining and really helpful so it's got a great yeah, mix you guys are amazing thank you bye guys I love that we got to do that interview. So great. Just a little button on this at the end that we just really appreciate Juliet and Dev. They were so generous and kind with their time. Really were. And, you know, as you guys know, we don't do a ton of interviews yet on the show. So it was a a, a total thrill for us to be able to get our hand in that jar. And we're very much hoping to do more. One of the things that happened near the end of that episode is we started the the technology started to fail me. <laughs> Shannon looked over to me and she said, "We're not recording." <laughs> it was like this moment. I mean, we were very far into their interview, and hopefully, you guys don't even notice. And this is just true confessions. So we didn't get to do our normal outro for our our episode. So. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. 